Hello, it is me. This is the version of Chris that asks you to support Ontario Loud on Patreon. It's so easy. It's so cheap. It helps us cover our costs. This version of me, this version of me that's talking to you right now is stuck in an alternate reality where you haven't supported us on Patreon yet. And I want to come home. I want to come home to the reality where you have. So help me come home and head to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud or ontarioloud.ca to support us today for less than the price of a good coffee. Again, that is patreon.com slash Ontario Loud or ontarioloud.ca. Do people feel comfortable about the ways in which political parties profile and target them? We've reached this stage where we are concerned about the sort of surveillance state of these big social media platforms, that they are watching our every move, and that that data is then available to political actors who want to persuade you. And um, I think it would be good if most people had a right to that type of access to that data. I think most people recognise that a party shouldn't be able to look into all of your behaviour and try and micro-target you on the basis of something you bought or something you care about. Welcome to Ontario Loud, the show about politics, public policy and current affairs had between recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. And today we're going to be talking to Sam Jeffers, who is an expert in digital organising and how data can be used to impact elections. He has just launched a project called Who Targets Me, which is basically a browser extension that will let Canadian voters know who is behind the ads they're seeing on Facebook. It is very cool. Uh, Stay tuned for that. But first, we wanted to check in with some news, how things have been going in the federal election since Brownfacegate, and what actual policy proposals the parties have been talking about since we complained so much the last time about how this election just seems to be so much about personality. With respect to the federal election, we did a deep dive on PMJT's brown-faced scandal in our last pod. But now that we've had about a week to process this story, it's worth checking in with where we're at. So the first thing to know is that this story has had, I think, almost universal coverage amongst Canadians. According to Ontario Lab preferred pollster David Coletto, close to 90% of Canadians indicated that they have been following this story either very closely or a little closely. And at the same time, the polling seems to have, if anything, after a brief dip, slightly improved to within the margin of error for the Liberals. So it's, it's within a point or two. It's hard to tell at this point who is truly ahead. But the consensus seems to be that the Liberals have rebounded a little bit and that because they hold a bit of a seat advantage just with the way the electoral boundaries go, that they are actually not in a too terrible position coming out of this pretty like next tier level scandal. So I'm curious, like, uh, Alexi, like, what do you think is going on here? Why the trend line you think look like this? Yeah, I mean, this is this is actually very consistent, I would say, with what politics has looked like now. If we look in the United States, for example, there's a an increasing sort of reluctance for the polls to change in the face of all kinds of things that may have been considered shocking previously. Um, so uh, on the one hand, I think I'm, I am surprised that uh, the numbers didn't move at all. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it is pretty consistent with the sense that this election, I mean, these numbers are very, very, very close. And they've been locked in for a while now. If you look at the variation in polls being very, very small uh, over time, it, it just it feels like we're coasting toward a minority uh, situation. That seems where the safe money is right now. And I'm not completely opposed to that outcome. I mean, if this didn't move the needle, it, it's hard to see how now that we're halfway through, we're going to get any major swings in those numbers coming out over the next few weeks. Yeah, the other thing that I thought was interesting in the Abacus poll, because they, they tagged on some questions specifically about the brownface scandal. When they asked people how they felt about it, uh, close to 80% of people either said they weren't bothered or saw it, didn't like it, and accepted the apology and moved on. Um, and only about 10% of the voters, according to Abacus, said that it might impact their likelihood to vote liberal in the negative. Last thought I had on this is that like the people whose 
seem to have reacted the most negatively to this actually appear to be a a block of conservative voters, which I think is interesting. And also white Canadians have been some of the most outraged, most outspoken. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about why that could be the case. And I've come to sort of the, the thinking that there is something about feeling disappointed by Justin Trudeau that is about his image as a person who is supposed to, I think, like tackle historic and colonial wrongs and realizing that he is not a perfect vessel for that. And actually, those wrongs require us pushing and organizing. And absolutely, it's not like electing Trudeau is going to make true progress on truth and reconciliation or a lot of these things that I think were very absolving for white people of colonial guilt. And I think there was some, uh, if I had to put a sort of a pet theory out there as to why that is the case. I think I agree with you. Uh, I'm I'm a little more skeptical, probably, of this the narrative that's taken hold that you know white people were more outraged. I think there's just a lot of variation in people's lived experience, and we're we're not. I don't know that the polling is um, super clear on this, or that there aren't other uh, reasons that people would answer questions about this in different ways. So I think everybody sees this with a different lens, and um, I think there is probably uh, also a group of people who aren't that bothered by it, but feel the need to say that they're bothered by it. For example, right. So, yeah. so I think to me, it's just, there's a lot of different reactions out there and it's really tough to, to sort it all out. Yeah. One of the things that interesting polling narratives that has taken place that I forgot to mention in the intro is that there's been a bunch of polls of the 905 on areas like Markham and Richmond Hill. And, yeah. Important uh, areas for sure. Important areas that are extremely diverse, lots and lots and lots of uh, like majority people of color in those communities. And the margins of error are really big. And we've seen the liberals up, we've seen the conservatives up, and we really don't know how this is breaking there yet, because the margins of error on those polls are like 5-6%. And I've seen polls of the 905 where the liberals are up 6% and people are like, it's over, Justin Trudeau's fine. Then I've seen the conservatives are up about that and people are saying this has had a real impact and it's going to hurt them. So yeah, there is definitely asterisk this discussion with a, there is still a huge TBD about this. Moving on, I thought it might also be good to do a bit of a policy check-in because, as we mentioned earlier, despite a general lack of public policy focus in this election generally, it might be worth highlighting what a few of the things the parties who are planning on running our country want to do. So curious just on like a, on a meta level, who do we think has done the best job so far at least getting ideas out there into the public consciousness? Is there anyone winning on this? Is there anyone losing on this? Since our last pod, I, I was pretty negative in our last pod. Early on in the coverage, there was a lot of talk about um, process and about candidates and not a lot about policy. And I think that's changing somewhat in the um, coverage, which is good. But I think what I don't see happening is anyone putting things on the table that are big enough or um, provide a vision that separates them enough to spark that bigger conversation or to really be an issue that takes hold. Um, and so I think they're getting good coverage on each of their days of announcements. but Every day is feeling the same. It's a you know a new topic. Each of the parties pulled out some relatively small thing usually, and coverage is about the horse race between the two of them and how actually in a lot of ways what Shear is promising is much more liberal than maybe what we've seen from the conservatives in the past, and what the liberals are promising is possibly less visionary than what some expected them to be putting out on some of these topics. So. As a result of that, I think there is a narrative that I think the policy prescriptions of the liberals and the conservatives are a lot closer together than I expected they would be. And as a result of that, it's also not creating a strong sense of a policy-based discussion about where we're going, because I think the media has 
bought into, it's really just a horse race between the conservatives and liberals at this point. So it feels like there's almost two different races happening in some ways. I agree. And it's interesting in the week. No, we said we were done talking about brown face, but I find a way to shoehorn it in here. Uh, the liberals have uh, just in like the past week seen them get more coverage of some of their ideas. They released some really, really, really big stuff before, like their middle income tax cut is actually like a, a really big ticket item. But in the week since, because they've had so much media coverage following the prime minister because of the scandal, they've actually been able to get a decent amount of coverage on climate. And I think that's also due to the climate activism yes, that has happened this definitely. week. But like, you know, them committing to net zero by 2050 with five year milestones, six billion trees, you know, I think all played well. And it's like the first little bit of differentiation that I've seen really in the policy coverage between the liberals and the conservatives. So I think in the comms, we're starting to see a little bit of divergence. And I think it's well played by by the liberals, at least yeah. on these environmental policies. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Fair enough. I think you're absolutely right. In the comms, there's a very strong push to differentiate on that issue. And I think the liberals are doing a good job in that. But I I guess what I would say is the way that they're differentiating themselves feels to be much more on the way they want you to think that they will govern on this, not on the specifics of how they're going to actually get to their promises, if that makes sense. So it's it's still to me a lot about signaling and not a lot about the substance. I mean, the, you know, Trudeau has been pushed many, many times to explain how they're going to get to their 2030 targets as well as their new 2050 target. And there there just isn't currently an answer to that question. And so it's great that they're putting out these aspirational promises, but at the same time, the differentiation then is just on what you say you want in the future, not necessarily on what you're actually going to do. And people aren't able to judge at any more greater level of detail. And so I think, I mean, I understand the political reasons for doing it that way, but it just, it remains then a discussion about your aspiration for the future and not actually any of your specific plans. Who knows, maybe they'll send all of us to camp, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Universal camp their new for everyone. Moving maybe outside of the realm of the liberals and the conservatives, the Greens and the NDP have been doing, I think, a decent job of at least getting coverage of announcements. I'm curious what you, how you think they're doing. Yeah. Uh, like I, th I said previously, it feels in some ways like there's two races. And it, I think part of that is that the Greens and NDP are talking at a different level about a lot of issues than the conservatives and the liberals are, who are the conservatives and liberals are playing it much safer and they're getting a lot of coverage of here's what the liberals would do, here's what the conservatives would do. Um, whereas the Greens and NDP are getting separate coverage uh, in a way that's kind of suggests these are third parties that aren't you know really vying for for government. And so I think there's been some good attention on some of their policy areas, but none, again, none of their none of their policy areas have managed to push the lead parties, the conservatives or the liberals, into actually engaging in a greater discussion on some of those topics. So, like dental care, for example, uh, has seems to have made somewhat of an impact for the NDP uh, in the media coverage, but it's not resulting in the liberals and conservatives having to comment on dental care in the country or anything like that. It's it almost seems like they're on two different tracks and. That no one's able to create like a real conversation that that encapsulates all the different perspectives on on these topics. The Green Party, I think, has done a great job compared to past years. I think we've seen way more coverage of green policy than in the past. So kudos to them. I just think that because they probably went into this thinking this is for us a a manifesto, not necessarily a plan for governing. Inevitably, there's been some pushback on the the realism of some of their costing and and things like that from the parliamentary budget office, for example, which is which is fair. Um, but at the same time, I cut them some slack just because to me, they're what they've put out there is more of a here are the things that we want. If you want us in your minority coalition at the end of this, 
they were never really truly expecting to put out a five-year plan for, for governing. The NDP has also done a couple of things in the last few days that sound like they're coming from a party that is looking to drum up support and not necessarily implement these ideas. So the big one for Jagmeet Singh would be um, his promise around uh, respecting a provincial veto for large infrastructure projects. So I don't know how you feel about that one, but it definitely smacked of wanting to uh, shore up some support and not really thinking that you're going to implement that as the next prime minister. Uh, and similarly, his recent comments in the last few days just about Donald Trump and impeachment, so the kind of things that rile up a base that feels that way about impeaching Donald Trump, but are, again, uh, very easy for people to say, well, wait a minute, like if you're really thinking of being prime minister, that that seems like maybe not a great perspective to take publicly. It, it actually speaks to the broader policy landscape in this where I'm, I'm actually truly, as we talk about it, getting more negative about just the state of it right now, because, yeah, we have this sort of like air war between the liberals and the conservatives. And then, you know, from the N the NDP and the Greens are actually talking about the things that I would like to see from our next government, you know, like Jagmeet Singh, I remember seeing him talking about affordable housing, which is a, yeah. a massive issue. Yeah. They're talking about dental care, they're talking about pharmacare, they're talking about basic income. Like those are like things that are big transformational national projects. But then you get this weird wacky stuff in both of their platforms, like Jagmeet Singh's provincial veto, which like Good luck getting any of your environmental infrastructure goals passed if Doug Ford and Jason Kenney can veto it. Right. So it just makes them seem unserious. And for the Greens, you know, their commitment to balance the budget in five years, like with the state of Canada's deficit being what it is right now, don't mean to raise alarm bells with it, but with where the starting point is, implementing all of the massive programs like basic income, like dental that they've put in their platform. And then committing to balance the budget in five years, it just seems like they had a meeting and they had a bunch of people saying, let's do this. And then other people saying, let's do this other thing. And they said, let's do it all. It makes them seem unserious and discouraging because I, I like I actually think it could be different. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if we if, if some of these ideas percolated enough into the public consciousness that we actually had all four parties talking about them and giving us a real opinion on what is reasonable in the next four years to expect on these key issues rather than everyone just going off and talking about their own thing? So that is our federal election coverage this week. We're now going to go to our interview with Sam Jeffers, founder of Who Targets Me. And joining me on this interview is Sam Andre. Let's take a look. Today, we're sitting down with Sam Jeffers. If you don't know Sam, you should. Uh, Sam is a digital strategist who has worked across the world helping political movements and organizations run campaigns and conduct digital outreach. He has worked for Blue State Digital, who notably supported President Barack Obama's 2008 and 2012 campaigns, and has worked for organizations, political and non-political, uh, across Europe. He currently lives in London, but is visiting us in Canada for a couple days. He is also the founder of a project called Who Targets Me, a browser extension that monitors political advertising on Facebook to help journalists and regular people understand who is supporting the ads they are seeing on Facebook specifically. And so, Sam, welcome to the pod. Hi. Nice. Be here. <laughs> Maybe we want to start a little bit with who targets me. What is this initiative at its core? Uh, why did you put it together? And why did you think it was important to make it uh, kind of the way that you made it? Sure. So, I mean, having been involved in political campaigns for quite a few years, I eventually left that world and went out on my own to do other, other types of work. And we started to see that the way election campaigns were being run was really changing. I mean, you know, the, the 2008-2012 Obama campaigns were both like highly data-driven, you know, quite targeted. But 
a lot of that work was done through grassroots, you know, building up big email lists, building big support bases and, and kind of putting people to work to do stuff. And so what I think we were interested in when we came to the 2017 election in the UK was how is particularly political advertising being used, targeted advertising being used. And at the time, there was a lot of concern because obviously we'd had uh, the Brexit referendum where people were worried about how much money had been spent on Facebook there. We were worried about the, the Trump election where people weren't sure what had gone on at all. There was concern about Russian interference and other things. So what we thought when we came to the 2017 election was that we could build a piece of software called a browser extension, set that up to look for Facebook ads in people's feeds, pull that data out and start to analyze it really. So how do we kind of cover the material that people are being targeted with in a campaign in real time, understand something about the volume and prevalence of that stuff, understand something about the messages being used, the targeting, make some extrapolations about spending, that sort of stuff. So how do we understand this part of the campaign, which which seemed to have been such a big part of those kind of surprising electoral victories over the couple of years preceding that? And that was it, really. You know, we, we built a software over the space of a weekend. Uh, I think we sent it off to a couple of newspapers. And a couple of days later, The Guardian had us on the front page of the website and we had 6,000 people taking part. So we already had a, you know, a sample that was three times the size of any polling sample in the UK for, for kind of looking at this material. And the the storytelling kind of flowed from there. Like, what is this stuff? Who's doing what? What does it mean? That type of thing. So, so we kind of yeah ran through that election campaign of six weeks, flying by the seat of our pants, trying mm-hmm. to work out what was happening in real time. And only then did we begin to sit back and think, okay, well, what, what is this organization? What is it trying to do? Type of transparency is it calling for in political advertising? What kind of accountability are we interested in? Uh, you know, and that's led to now in 2019, we're here in Canada. Federal election campaigns just beginning. Uh, we're asking people in Canada to install the software. We're working with Ryerson and some other people on looking at that data and understanding how it's being used here in this campaign. And then you, you know, you you wait and see what you see. What are the big parties doing? What are the big candidates doing? Who's spending most money? What do third parties do? Who who are kind of non-party campaigners who are getting involved? And again, you're you're trying to explain the campaign as you see it in real time. And I understand that you've been using this in a lot of different countries and you're going to be rolling it out in Canada. But what do you think you're going to learn about um, how political parties are targeting votes and sort of what have you seen in other countries that has worried you or interested you? You know, my focus has always been the mainstream political campaigns. When we find other stuff, it's interesting. But particularly in parliamentary systems, so the UK and Canada have fairly similar electoral systems. The kind of logic of a campaign is that you you focus in on a relatively few voters. I mean, obviously, you've got to get your base out. You know, the people that do that best have a great chance of winning an election. But if you believe there are persuadable voters, which is sometimes a question at all, but if you believe they're out there, then you need to find them and you need to persuade them. And and in a you know parliamentary system, you have ten, fifteen, twenty seats that matter, and within those seats, you have a few thousand people that matter. And so the party that can identify those people find messages that resonate often emotionally as to seems to be the way with modern political campaigning rather than on any particular policy you give yourself a chance you know so so that seems to be the thing that that i'm most interested in is this idea that as we get better and better technology behind our campaigns as data becomes more and more apart and the and the kind of analysts and people that do this can work it out that we end up with elections that are fought over a few thousand voters in places that actually don't matter that much in the election. Oh, you know, it, it's like the American problem of like the primary states. You know, they're not the states that are the most important to the to the overall country, but the order of things is the order of things. And I think we need to have a think about is that the way we want our democracies to run? And in a way, the way that the campaigns themselves are kind of steering uh, election campaigns 
just the conduct of democracy poses some real risks. I'm curious for who you think is doing this well right now. I think on you know progressive media podcasts like ours, we've talked a lot about how it just seems like the global right um, and right wing movements across the world are good at this right now. But that is, I think, just perhaps an emotional reaction to having lost some devastating elections. The progressive side doesn't need to be overly concerned, on, on at least on the advertising front, that they are being outmatched in some way. You know, if you look at what happens in the UK, yes, typically the Conservative Party outspends the Labour Party. Occasionally, they'll have good messaging, but the Labour Party also has good emotive messaging that people respond to as well. But on one hand, they're outspending the Labour Party because they don't have people on the ground. And the Labour Party can have its message carried through people in a way because they have genuine grassroots support, uh, whereas the Conservative Party has to buy that reach through advertising. So, you know, there's a sort of logic to the way those campaigns run that I don't think necessarily means that the left in the UK are at a disadvantage here. And I think actually the same is true in the US. You know, if you look at, yes, the 2016 cycle, you know, it seems to be received wisdom now that the Hillary campaign made mistakes. It didn't, you know, its polling data wasn't particularly good and it didn't run campaigning in the right places. That might be more the issue than the fact that Trump ran 5.9 million different Facebook ads. As, as as sophisticated and, you know, intimidating as that sounds, it doesn't necessarily mean that that was what, what swung the difference. And certainly when you get to the next cycle, you know, it seems very likely that the Democratic base is going to be very active, they're going to raise a lot of money, and they're going to not get anywhere near being outspent. You know, they will, you know, last time I think Hillary outraised Donald Trump two to one, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Democratic candidate doesn't outraise him again, and outspend on Facebook, and have really good data people working all of this out. So again, I'm, I'm not sure that we have anything on the left, as it were, to fear. But you know, it, it's a serious part of modern campaigning, and it's a signal that you're serious. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it may actually not be terribly effective. It may be something that puts you over the top in a close race, but it may not give you a massive advantage. But at the same time, you have to do these things properly because in a campaign, the, the logic of it is that you leave nothing on the table. You spend every last dollar. As long as the left believes that and goes looking for the resources it needs to win campaigns, I don't think there's any particular advantage the right has. You know, the question is more a, a political question about the circumstances we find ourselves in and the, the question about whether or not left and liberal governments can deliver real gains for people. That's a really good segue. We find ourselves in the middle right now in Canada in a federal election campaign. And I'm curious for if I'm a voter going on Facebook and operating in sort of this modern social media environment, what kinds of uh, tactics and ads should I be um, looking out for? How might I expect uh, a modern political party to try and manipulate my behavior through Facebook? I mean, I think you see people drawn in a lot by sort of take our survey type stuff, right? And, it, and the Trump version of that is very extreme. You know, take my media bias survey and, you know, check some boxes about how much you hate the fake news media and all that type of thing. But I think most mainstream parties like you to answer some questions about the issues you care about to see what types of advertising you'll be clicking on in terms of, you know, as a party, we have three core issues in our platform. You know, in the UK right now, the Tories, it's about policing, it's about some NHS investments, about education. You know, there are three classic political issues where if your ads are getting some response and you're able to track that response and kind of measure what's going on, you can lump people into three fairly straightforward buckets. 
and say, right, you're a, you're a health service voter. You know, we will make sure that that's our theme with you. And you're an education voter. You're potentially a parent, that sort of stuff. You know, we'll kind of find you that way. So as, a, as a, someone online, you signal your behavior in ways that, you know, can sometimes feel a bit sort of unexpected or subtle. Oh, I'll just click through and read what they have to say about it. Well, the assumption on the other end might be, okay, we've, we've got you now and um, you're, you're in that bucket. So um, I think you're looking at that type of stuff. I think then the other stuff is about how involved people are going to get in campaigns, right? So you're obviously you're trying to fundraise, you're trying to get people to go to events or to watch live streams and these sorts of things. And again, by interacting with those types of advertising, you, you signal a willingness to become an activist and a partisan in the campaign. And, and, you know, those types of resources are invaluable, right? Campaigns need those people. And so I think, you know, how you get activated by in the first instance, the kind of message type ads, then these kind of money type ads and the mobilization type ads. That's the sort of category that I look at these things through. And um, and then that gives you a pretty good clue as to what the campaign then might want to do with you from there. Mm-hmm. So there was a big push in Canada ahead of this election to bring more transparency to political advertising and try to increase literacy about those things, requirements around an ad library for big tech firms. Also, a lot of criticism that these moves didn't go far enough and primarily, you know, no attempts to try to moderate content around false information and that sort of thing. Are there any countries out there that are doing better? And what advice would you give to sort of the next Canadian government on how to improve? So the only only two countries I know of that have done really anything at all are Canada. And so we know what the rules are here now. But France has some much more traditional you know, advertising is political advertising and broadcast is banned. And they have basically said the internet is broadcast. So so you can't really buy ads online. Whereas in Britain, you can't buy ads on TV, but they've decided the internet is more like leaflets, which you can buy. So so there's almost like which category does the internet fall into in terms of your existing electoral regulation, or perhaps the need to update electoral <laughs> regulation to account for the internet might be might be a good thing. Um, in 2019. In 2019, in 2023, or whenever we, we actually get around to it. The thing that I think is um, really interesting is, do people feel comfortable about the ways in which political parties profile and target them? You know, we've reached this stage where we are concerned about the sort of surveillance state of these big social media platforms, that they are watching our every move, and that that data is then available to political actors who want to persuade you. And, um, you know, in the UK and in Europe now, we have quite sort of strong rights, privacy rights, where we can ask questions about the use of our data. A, A, we have significant opt-in rights, but B, we have things called subject access requests, where you can effectively write to a political party and say, give me everything you got. And that that can be quite explanatory in terms of how they think about you. I think it would be good if most people had a right to that type of access to that data. As I understand it, under Canadian law, that's not available to you. And and basically, parties can do what they want. I think most people recognize that a party shouldn't be able to look into all of your behavior and try and micro-target you on the basis of something you bought or something you care about. Um, You know, you should have some rights to see what's going on. Mm -hmm. Going back to the leaflet versus broadcast uh, analogy, trying to you know think of like a, a leaflet that has the ability to find you based on like super yeah the Harry Potter Harry Potter leaflet yeah uh, algorithmic um, as an individual in this environment is there anything I can do to broaden or subvert that categorization because I guess you're you're going to see a broader swath of your democracy if you don't allow yourself to be put into a little bucket? Is there any sort of individual behavior things that 
people can do to maybe fight back against some of the micro-targeting that is happening. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because, I mean, obviously most people who decide they don't like ads install ad blockers. So you can, you know, that's the opposite side, right? I, I will see none of this stuff. Interestingly, there were some like people looking at different methods for kind of creating privacy online. So in fact, rather than ad blocking, uh, there are some plugins I think you can get hold of that essentially pollute the data stream with white noise, add lots of rather other random stuff to the data, thus making it impossible really for a you know a kind of big platform to work out who you are. I suspect if you did something like that, you might get a broader group of ads, or you might get none at all. Uh, it's a bit theoretical. You know, I again as a, as a political nerd, I want to see what campaigns are doing, so I generally sign up to all the email lists, like all the Facebook pages, follow all the Twitter accounts. Clearly, that gives me a broader view of what's going on uh, at the risk of feeling a bit bombarded at times. I think most people in the end aren't actually that persuadable. They've sort of made up their mind in advance. The campaign is going on. Uh, you know, if you have some temptations to vote in another way, yeah, hear what the other parties have to say, right? And, and, and the nice thing about, in a way, the internet is that you can also go looking for it. You don't just have to wait for it to come to mm-hmm. you and you can sort of start to balance out your campaign and give yourself some choices. So. I think that's probably quite a healthy thing to do, and I'm I'm not sure how many people actually do that. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I want to send a big thank you to Sam Jeffers for joining us, and another thank you to our own Sam Andrew for connecting us. Sam has released a report through the Ryerson Leadership Lab called Rebuilding the Public Square that focuses on our interaction and attitudes towards social media. So check that out. It is really, really cool. Ontario Loud is hosted by Sam Andrew, Kate Hammer, Alexi White, and myself. We are supported by an amazing team of volunteers, including Harmon Mundy, Aisha Anwar, and Philip Askew. You can send us mail at ontarioloudmail at gmail.com or ontarioloud.ca. We will see you next week. Thank you for listening.